0: You're listening to the IC interviews from the Investors Chronicle. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm speaking to Mike Riddle, one of the managers of the Allianz Strategic Bond Fund. This is a flexible fund that can invest across the whole bond universe, It's designed to protect investors at times of equity market volatility and was hugely successful in that respect earlier this year. Mike who is well known for his time previously working as a bond manager at M&G has run a variety of different bond funds in his time from gilt funds to emerging market debt portfolios. We're going to discuss what the future holds for bonds and whether they still work as a portfolio diversifier. Mike thanks for uh, thanks for joining I was uh, I was going to start with uh, getting straight into it with some of the big questions some of our readers and listeners may be asking about bonds. Um, obviously, earlier this year in the sell-off, government bonds were one of the few assets that actually kind of protected investors. Where is the value now in government bonds? And you know, can we can we still rely on those as diversifiers?
1: It's a very re- relevant question, and, and actually, we've we've fielded similar questions for the last decade. I think a lot of people have. Um, have rosy memories of bonds or risk-free government bonds giving you yields of four or five percent, you know, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. And post the crisis in 0809, as we had government bond yields going steadily lower, or at least from 2010 anyway, then we, we, there was a narrative you heard a lot that you know government bonds are a, are, are a return-free risk. The idea that even in a, a crisis they couldn't protect you. I mean, as, you, as you just said, that, that narrative clearly was shown to be false. Um, in the first quarter of this year, we did have a, a decent government bond rally as the Federal Reserve um, slashed rates to, to zero or close to zero and, and began doing QE. So, you know, clearly we weren't at the lower bounds and, and rates could go lower and QE has driven government bond prices higher. However, it doesn't mean the narrative is, is still false today. Um, and it is a real worry for us. Um, as bond investors obviously but also government bond investors when you look at for example UK government bonds where you have yields which are negative out to seven or eight years maturity that's basically implying that the Bank of England is going to not hike rates um, for almost a decade uh, and also that um, um, there's a risk they'll even cut rates to, to negative in the next few years on top of that so from a valuation perspective, you kind of think there's not much more room they can really rally, at least in, in kind of shorter dated maturities. So I think that the, the, the concern that many people have got around government bonds and UK in particular, I'd probably argue, is that government bonds can't really rally much more. if There's another sort of, uh, a, a second wave or even a completely new crisis. Maybe they can't protect you as much as they could. I wouldn't say that's true necessarily for all government bond markets. I mean, when you look outside of the UK, we found a lot of value in places like Australia. You know, longer dated Australian government bonds are giving you quite decent yields of one point seven percent at the moment, um, and Australia is not in a great shape either. So that could that could certainly move lower in our view. And other markets like Singapore, even like the US. You know, US treasuries are yielding quite a bit more than the UK. But I I, I think it is a valid argument that some parts of the bond market now are becoming a return-free risk.
0: I, I guess kind of other elements of government bond exposure, where do you stand on, um, I mean, obviously you can move up and down in terms of kind of duration, so your um, your sensitivity to interest rate changes. And um, I suppose in recent years, being long duration has generally uh, provided you some really good returns. Um, what's your kind of view on that kind of side of things? So, yeah,
1: it's... If- as you say, if you are um, bullish on government bonds, you want to be longer duration. If you're bearish on government bonds, um, within government bonds, you want to be shorter duration. So we are in our portfolio at the moment. Um, Although there are some markets that we don't like, there are also some markets that we do like. Um, And overall, we're actually around neutral. I mean, government bonds globally at the moment are clearly not offering great value. But are government bonds really going to sell off in the next three months or so um, uh, or maybe even longer than that I mean central banks have fought so hard to to drive volatility lower to to help companies to um, you know mm-hmm. to generate economic growth which hopefully is now starting to come through that they're not going to um you know risk ruining all the good work they've done in, in in March and April and until the present day so I don't think that we're anywhere near rate hikes and uh, i don't think that that the economy is robust enough that they can start um, you know, putting their feet on the brakes and, and slowing all this monetary policy easing that's been going on. So we don't really have a particularly strong view. Yes, they're quite and, and they're not great value, but we don't expect um, a, a big sell-off. So I'd say in government bonds specifically, we are globally um, around neutral at the moment.
0: And that kind of environment you described, um, kind of loose monetary policy and the huge amount of fiscal stimulus we're seeing, um, are there any kind of parts of the bond market that generally, either because of those factors or perhaps the sell-off more generally, have looked more attractive? Uh, are there, you know, interesting opportunities at the minute?
1: Yeah, I think I think um, globally, yes. I mean, I do think. I, mean, I mentioned before our UK government bonds, that the shorter dated bonds look really pretty bad value. Um, but yeah. even within UK gilts. We, you know, we think the curve is actually quite steep and you are getting yields of 0.6, 0.7% if you go out a bit further toward 20 year maturity. So there are some areas, some pockets of value in even the gilt market, even though it's market, don't like that much. Um, yeah. And like I mentioned, Australia and Singapore and to an extent the U S even actually, um, even German government bonds, which I mean, everyone's aware they have negative yields, but. Once you hedge these yields back into sterling, you do actually get a similar yield to what you get on, on gilts. And if your fear is that at some stage, you know, whether it's virus related or not, that at some stage you get a rerun of the eurozone debt crisis, what I've always thought in the back of my mind is that German government bond yields can go very, very negative, which means you could have a very, very big price appreciation in bonds, even though they currently have slight negative yields. There is maybe that five or ten percent chance that you could still get a 30 or 40 percent capital gain if people start thinking about bonds being dominant denominated in Marks. so you know, it's always difficult to be very underweight german government bonds when you have that potentially large upside which is which is a tail risk um and you know within government bonds I'd say some inflation link markets are looking quite attractive um again i'd say specifically not the uk in fact UK index-linked gilts are probably our least favourite bonds in the whole world. <laughs> and given the, <laughs> the market's pricing in quite a lot of inflation, um, if you look at the difference in yields between uh, um, index-linked gilts and conventional gilts, because kind the of market-side inflation is around one percent higher than the Bank of England's target, which is completely different to every other market. Um, but if you um, if you look at US or even you, actually the Eurozone, um, there's very little inflation still priced in, and and it's one of our fears is that from the middle of next year, even if it proves temporary, you actually could see quite a big jump in inflation.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting debate, isn't it? We're seeing going back and forth now, you know, with the huge fiscal stimulus and if monetary policy stays loose, some people argue we'll have that, um, even if it's, limit, you know, kind of temporary kind of rebounds in inflation. Um, how How would you expect that to affect a bond portfolio? And, I mean, you've already mentioned kind of, um, inflation-linked bonds, but where can you go for cover in a sort of inflationary environment?
1: Um, in, well, if there's a sustained inflationary environment, so if we get a jump in inflation and then it keeps going higher, which is not my, my core view, but there's always a risk of that um, from you know next year or the, probably particularly in three or four years' time. If you do get a big jump in inflation, that's going to be very bad for bonds. I mean, inflation is the enemy of the bond investor. But yeah. I think what people might fail yeah. to realize is that that's bad for everything. Um, you know, if you look at the 1970s, it's a great example where everyone thinks about the, the huge inflation we had now, over 20% at the end of the 1970s in, in the UK. But bonds got hit very hard, as you'd expect. Equities also got hit very hard. You know, inflation is not good for anything, particularly in this environment when central banks have um, ridden to the rescue and, and done lots of you know interest rate cuts and QE if inflation jumps they cannot justify keep you know, they can't justify bailing out the, the global economy because you've got an inflation problem so i think inflation is the enemy for all financial asset classes not just bonds I and mean, within bonds then clearly inflation linked bonds are going to protect you a bit better but i think you do have to be careful about you know what maturity you um, bonds you're buying i mean yeah. index and gilts you've got some 50 year index and gilts out there they've got such a long duration that um, actually it's not really inflation that drives these bonds. It's actually conventional guilt yields as the main driver. So, you know, in an inflationary environment, you might see gilts do very badly. Inflation-linked gilts, longer dated bonds, could do even worse. So, you do have to be careful. Um, you know, we think that eurozone inflation-linked bonds, again, pricing in very little inflation, inflation, um, you know, over one percent below the, the ECB's target looks fairly cheap. Don't expect an inflation problem, but they, they're not pricing in anything anyway. And and US tips, which now, we would expect the U.S. economy to, to bounce back fairly strongly over the next few years um, and we could get a bit of a jump in inflation there. So you know, they are the natural go to hedge.
0: And um, considering inflation or otherwise, um, how are you feeling currently on other parts of the bond market? So um, different areas of corporate bonds?
1: Yeah, within our um, portfolio, our strategic bond fund is it's really an unconstrained fixed income fund, and it's, it's global in, in its reach, um, and, and we can go across the whole spectrum as well. Where we are currently positioned is, you know, as we discussed, government bonds fairly neutral um, overall. Corporate bonds we do still think are cheap. Um, you know, credit spreads, which is the extra yield in a corporate bond over a government bond are still historically reasonably generous. I mean, they're kind of back at the levels we saw at the end of 2018, when we had that um, 10 to 15% drop in equities, um, which was really all about the Federal Reserve tightening policy very aggressively, and eventually markets said they had enough. So, you no, know, we are back to those sort of semi-distressed levels that we saw at the end of 2018, and beginning of 2019. And we think that because of all the massive stimulus, that um, you know, credit spreads actually look reasonable value. So we do prefer corporate bonds. Um, we, we, are, we have a big overweight versus our benchmark and about half our funds actually invested in, in corporate bonds. That mm. said, um, credit spreads have tightened a lot. Corporate bonds have done very well. While we don't really see the macro risks growing much in the next few months, which will cause a big uh, correction or big sell-off, valuations aren't that cheap. And, and, and that makes us a little bit more worried. Um, so whereas well, in, in May, in the beginning of June, we were basically limit long of corporate bonds within our mandate. We, we could not be more overweight. Um, we've probably reduced it by about 30 or 40 percent um, since then. So that's just on valuations, really, rather than anything else.
0: Interesting. Uh, and what sort of, um, in terms of the, the quality of uh, those bonds, where are you sort of going?
1: Yeah, we, when we started buying corporate bonds back in March, when, when they were extremely cheap, um, we were buying really, you could buy highly rated corporate bonds and I'm thinking about the likes of um, you know the, the ExxonMobil which is double A rated, it's one of the strongest balance sheets in the world. Or if you're looking at Toyota, which is one of the strongest car manufacturers, again it's double A minus rated, um, or, you know, some of the, the tech names, um, like Oracle for example, again sort of single A rated, very solid investment grade blue chip companies. In in, in March April they were issuing bonds that credit spreads that you saw on distressed debt in or at least very deep junk rated companies in, in in january so again, blue chip companies issuing bonds at distressed prices and that's why we, we were hoovering the stuff up we were buying as many corporate bonds as we could which were investment grade corporate bonds what we've seen since really the, the middle end of, of april is that the highest rated companies and particularly those in non-cyclical sectors haven't really been offering much value and indeed the credit spreads haven't tightened much since April, since the end of April. So, you know, we sold our Oracle bonds, we sold you know, Coca Cola, these kind of names. Um, because those weren't offering offering value. We were finding better value in the so called Triple B, which is a lower rated mm. investment grade company. So they're still investment grade,
0: but they're not they're not junk.
1: Uh, uh, that's think, the
0: area people always worry about, isn't it? I mean, it's where the question yeah. sort of
1: yeah, it's the area that people worried about before this um, crisis, because mm. um, what you saw was as you had a huge increase in leverage, particularly in the US in the last ten years. Um, you know, companies taking out more and more debt, doing lots of M and A and buying back their their equities. Um, as they were piling debt on debt, then their credit ratings were going down, and you had a situation where half of the US investment grade corporate bond market was rated triple B, so just on the cusp of getting downgraded to junk. I think actually this is why it's still quite cheap. People are still very worried about triple Bs and how they might get junked if things deteriorate much further. But I feel that narrative's a little bit overblown, given the Federal Reserve can buy these companies' bonds um, as long as they keep doing QE and they have been. So um, that is actually the area that we find where there's value. I think with triple B corporates, yes, if lots of them get downgraded to high yield, you'll have a lot of force sellers of these, um, and, and yes, yeah, spreads might widen a bit. But ultimately, the stronger rated companies they face what I call credit risk, which is a temporary loss of capital. Now, these companies are still decent companies. They're not really, or they shouldn't be going bust anytime soon. We prefer to lend to those companies where you're getting a bit more yield, but without taking too much risk. I fear that if you go too far down into sub-investment grade or or junk or or high yield, it's all the same thing, then you start facing the risk of a permanent loss of capital, i.e. default, if stuff gets really bad. And and that's where I, I still feel that you're not really getting paid Enough, um, enough yield, um, enough return to, to compensate for the risk of a second wave or uh, you know a W-shaped recovery.
0: So you haven't been tempted by because um, I guess some of those yields are really interesting at the sort of most painful moments to of sell off on areas like high yield.
1: Yeah, we were. I mean, we were buying uh, General Motors. So that's an example, where um, you know they are right on the cusp of getting jumped but they're still actually one of the better auto companies. They're much better shaped than they were um, 15 years ago. Um, GM was was uh, giving you a yield of seven percent for seven years, so it was really pricing in. It was already trading like a deep, high-rated, you know, deep junk company. So we were finding some of the the more cyclical sectors, like autos. You could actually get decent yields without going into the high-yield categories. Um, we, yeah, we we think that high-yield credit doesn't look particularly great, um, uh, and we are a bit worried about it. I think it's if you really want to take much more risk in fixed income, maybe it's areas of EM debt are looking a bit more attractive than, than the kind of uh, developed market corporates. Um, we, we haven't really built much of a position up yet, but we are thinking about where in EM are you finding better value? Because ultimately, what's happened in the last couple of months is all oh, actually very supportive for emerging markets. You've had a, a weaker dollar. You've had higher commodity prices. You've had a lot of you know, risk appetite as people have been you know, chasing yield a bit. Um, and um, you know, very loose monetary policy from the U.S. Normally, this is the perfect environment for, for emerging markets, and yet they haven't really rallied that much because of essentially political risks or, I mean, virus as well. Clearly, is worse in, in Latin and, and South Asia. But you know, if we start seeing signs of improvement in the rate of infections in, say, Brazil or or, or, or South, Southern Asia, then actually EM does start looking quite cheap. So we're getting quite close to allocating more to EM debt, but we're not quite there yet.
0: So there's nowhere specifically that stood out just yet. I
1: mean you can get you can get a little bit um idiosyncratic if you like. I mean there are there are there are companies or countries, I should say, countries bonds such as uh, Venezuela or or Lebanon. I mean, that is deep distressed debt. In fact, it's defaulted debt. Mm-hmm. But they have defaulted and you can buy Lebanon bonds at the moment with a cash price of sixteen cents in the euro. And the worst default, the worst sovereign default in history with Argentina in 2001 when you got 30% of your money back and uh, Lebanon is already 50% below that again. So there is there are some interesting risk reward opportunities out there if you I mean we'd never have a big position in Lebanon clearly but it's, <laughs> it's if you do want to chase um, chase a bit of yield and I think where and if you if you're willing to take a, a lot of risk then um, <laughs> then then you know buying up some distressed debt at the moment actually is starting to look quite attractive because can Lebanon bonds really fall that much more? I mean, they could fall a bit more, but they're already priced at such distressed levels that yeah. you know it's, it's equivalent of penny stocks, if you
0: like. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's really interesting. You mentioned um, uh, the chase for yield because um, I guess some of our kind of readers and listeners um, were, you know, very income minded, um, very focused on, um, for example, UK dividends. And what's been happening this year has perhaps left them kind of looking for. Um, other areas where they can replace that yield. But I suppose if they wanted to replace kind of levels of yield that were available on, for example, the UK market, then that is pushing them into places like high yield and emerging market debt.
1: Exactly. And that's something which I think fixed income investors have been a little bit blind to, many of them. The, yes, they, they still think that the risk-free rate is 4 or 5%, but it's not. It's zero or even negative in some countries now. So if you want to have yield from your bond portfolios, in particular, um, in excess of that risk-free rate, you've got to take some risk, uh, and, and the question is, um, is it worth taking that risk or not? In, in March, April, May, June, we thought it definitely was, you're getting paid very mm-hmm. decent yields on some lower-rated, um, even if you're in still investment grade, some lower-rated corporate or, or even sovereign bonds. Um, it's becoming less obvious now. I mean, as, as, as a bond fund manager, I can't comment too much on, on the, the dividend yields or I mean, yep. what you what you see with with bond yields as well as dividend yields is that you know, that yield is only accurate if 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 those payments continue, uh, and that's, that's like with a bond when it, if it defaults, obviously you don't get any payments, and that's the same thing with a, with an equity dividend, whether it's BP or Shell or whoever it is, if they smash their dividend or cut their dividend to zero, then you know your dividend yield isn't quite as attractive as it was because there is no dividend. So you know you have to bear in mind the risks you're taking when when chasing these higher yields.
0: Yep, and. I guess um, speaking more generally about risk, how are you? How are you currently positioned in terms of um, expectations, or otherwise, of kind of further volatility, the, the risk of a kind of another sell-off, that kind of thing?
1: So the um, you know volatility obviously was enormous in March, not just in equities but everywhere, and that's why credit spreads blew out much wider. This is why you know even U.S. treasuries are selling off as equities are collapsing. Government bonds are selling off as well, and. And the, the central banks and the Federal Reserve in particular were desperate to get the U.S. yield curve back under control. Because if your risk-free rate is going bananas, then you can be pretty sure everything else is going to go bananas as well. And that's exactly what's happening. So mm-hmm. central banks are so desperate to keep volatility low, to, to keep low, uh, across government bonds. But that then filtered through into other other financial markets as well. So I don't really see much imminent risk of a of, of big bond sell-off because they won't let it happen because then, you know, have a, have a repeat or a risk of a repeat. What we saw in 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 march and and in april so you know we think that well firstly the macro scenario is a lot stronger than it was clearly in february march i mean the the monetary policy stimulus has been enormous and the fiscal stimulus has been enormous much bigger and much faster than what you saw in 08 09 so you know as we saw all the stimulus being piled onto financial markets um then we became more positive because valuations were pricing in a great depression And the other thing as well, actually, I think is often overlooked, is that energy prices tend to uh, lead the global economic cycle by about six months. So when you get collapsing oil prices and energy prices, normally you get a quite decent pickup in growth about six months later. Uh, And actually, when you get a jump in oil prices, that's normally bad for growth six months later. I mean, most recessions are actually preceded by a a spike higher in in oil, uh, at least historically. So so when we were looking at markets in, in the end of Q1 and in Q2, we were very bullish on the global outlook, and we expected a, a V-shaped recovery, and that seems to be following through. Um, you know, Volatility, I think, will, will stay low as long as central banks allow it to stay low. The biggest risk to central banks, which I, I touched on earlier, is that if you do get a jump in inflation, then central banks can't keep the stimulus going and then you might see volatility come back in a big way Uh, that's not an imminent risk but that could be a a live risk from maybe the the very end of this year or particularly um, probably middle of next year
0: Mm, it's interesting the whole um, kind of inflationary concepts I was reading one paper um, sort of detailing the conditions that could um, lead to it and you know ways in which it may be a, a good thing um in some respects but they they did the authors made an interesting point that if governments do kind of and central banks decide to kind of let inflation run a bit more freely they then have to be much more flexible um and you know much more willing to sort of like jump in when it's uh when it gets out of hand and then perhaps ease the reins again when they want it to run a bit higher that kind of thing i guess that makes the situation quite unpredictable
1: it, it, yeah you know, it's it's at some point, I think in the future there will be a big test of central banks. Do they do they really believe in um, you know? Do they really believe in inflation targeting? And you know, I can understand the academic arguments about given that you had inflation undershooting by so much, therefore you can run, let it run a little bit hot before it becomes a permanent problem. It, it does make sense, but yeah. I I still worry that if markets start seeing above inflation, and that by the way is going to be happening from Q2 of next year, the way as things stand. What you have to remember about inflation is that inflation is a year-on-year number so what you're going to have happening from about you know, may of, of 2021 is that the oil price collapse that we saw in q1 and and, and april of this year comes out of the year-on-year numbers so it's called the base effects so you are going to see a jump in inflation um because you're comparing an oil price of zero to an oil price of, of you know summer next year might be 60. um and that could be very inflationary so mm-hmm. It probably proves temporary, but what we normally see is that markets don't seem to fully understand it's likely to be temporary in 2022 or come down again. You might see a situation in the middle of next year when inflation in the U.S. could be 3%, you know, growth could be flying if coronavirus isn't around or they've found a vaccine, and suddenly markets would be thinking, is the central bank going to be able to maintain all this stimulus if you've got inflation at 3 and maybe growth at 4 I mean, our interest rates really going to be? Is it, is it right they should be at zero, and in the, in, in the Fed still doing QE? Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that from the middle of next year, there is a big risk of a, a major bond sell-off or a, or a major financial market volatility event, if you like. Maybe not dissimilar to what we saw in the paper tantrum of, of 2013. Um, no, it's it's a risk which I think is not imminent, but it's one that's very much on on our horizon because it could cause a big move.
0: Yeah, what I've been trying to understand recently is how. Um, in, in the context of this belief of inflation perhaps coming back, is why um, government bond yields have still remained so low. Is there a good sort of explanation of that? And there are probably several factors, I imagine. But
1: the, yeah, the well, so longer term, I mean, there's been a lot of research um, over the last five, ten years, and I totally agree with, with a lot of it. It's, if you like, it's a thesis of secular stagnation, or you know, low of longer, if you want to be more trivial about it. But it's essentially Government bonds are largely driven by very big picture macro things, and those are demographics and debt levels. So if you look at Japan, Japan's working age population began to shrink in the early 1990s after they had their big credit bubble and then bust. And I think actually, maybe it's no coincidence that the credit bubble popped when demographics hit the tipping point. Same thing happened in in most developed world in You know, The the working age population of Spain or Ireland or Portugal began to shrink just before the last crisis when the credit bubble uh, popped. Um, And actually, now, if you look at the whole world, China, which is the main driver of that, has gone through this process too. So Chinese demographics are now deteriorating, and they have been for a few years. And that's why growth is going to be much lower. And if growth is much lower, then also government bond yields are also going to be much lower um, because they tend to move together. And then you have to consider inflation in Japan. And this is why, longer term, I'm not too worried about inflation because... Japan has been leading the way for 10 to 20 years versus most of the rest of the world. That in Japan, demographics have been deteriorating uh, and debt levels steadily rising because governments have to keep borrowing more to maintain the same kind of growth rates. And, and we have a huge amount of debt now in Japan. Um, and the result is, is low growth and low inflation. So I think, you no, know, this sort of lower for longer view is, is, is something which I, I, I do firmly believe in. And that's why government bond yields are still very low. I think if you look more near term, and particularly in the last three or four months, why have, for example, gilts, why are yields so low and at record lows at the moment? Um, it's very simple. And everyone's writing headlines and obsessing about the amount of government bond suppliers we have to fund all this all this borrowing. But they're missing the point, which is the central bank, the Bank of England is buying it all. So what you really need to care about is it's not the gross supply of government debt, it's the net supply of government debt. So you've got to take account of the fact that, yes. The Debt Management Office in the UK has issued a record number of gilts. But the Bank of England ate it all and and more. So that is why government bond yields are so low. So this is kind of going back to the, the argument of what could cause a big government bond sell-off. Well, you really need higher inflation, which means that central banks can't eat all the gilts um, or, mm. or all the government bonds. And then that's when things get dangerous.
0: Tricky times, potentially, for people using bonds in their portfolios. Brilliant. Well, um, well thanks for that. Okay, Great, thank so. you.